So before we jump into today's episode, it's important that we acknowledge that this conversation was recorded on the land of the Tongva and Chumash peoples. Panelists joined us from colonized lands throughout North America. We recognize the Tongva, Chumash, and all indigenous nations, tribes, and peoples for being historical and continual caretakers of these lands. Three, two, one. Greetings, Ash family, and welcome back to another episode of the Ash Presidential Podcast focused on humanizing higher education. I am your co-host, Dr. Royal Johnson, Associate Professor of Higher Ed and Social Work at the University of Southern California and Director of Student Engagement at the USC Race and Equity Center. Shout out to my colleagues at the USC Race and Equity Center for being a co-sponsor of the series. And I have the very distinct honor and privilege of working with my dear friend and lifelong academic partner, Dr. Felicia Commodore. Thank you, Dr. Johnson. Excited to be here. I'm your other co-host, Dr. Felicia Commodore, Associate Professor at Old Dominion University in the Higher Education and Community College programs. Uh, We're excited today. Uh, We've got some great scholars here. Um, We're going to talk about various elements of humanizing higher education and particularly what that looks like considering the changes and shifts that we've seen happen at our institutions because of COVID Um, and thinking about how this has impacted how we approach work, how people see their work, how people see them as see themselves as workers or do not see themselves as workers. Um, And so we're going to have a really great uh, chit chat about that um, and then thinking about what what does working at our institutions look like as we move forward. Okay, join us in welcoming our special guest, Dr. Kevin R. McClure, who is the Murphy Distinguished Scholar of Education at the University of North Carolina, and then Jonathan Oakstead, Research Associate at Loyola University, Chicago, Uh, and last but not least, Dr. Toby Jenkins-Henry, Associate Professor and Director uh, of the Museum of Education and Interim Associate Dean of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at the University of South Carolina, the other USC. Yes, Dr. Jenkins Henry got a lot of jobs. Yes, okay. mini hats. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about that. <laughs> I can't wait to talk about that conversation. Um, so before we jump into our roundtable conversation, we do have a, a little activity, a little fun we want to have uh, that we are doing with all of our guests, and it's called This or That. So we're going to give you two options, just two, and you're going to choose the option you prefer most. Only one. Just one. I know that's tough for us scholars, but just one. Um, And so we're going to do that and we're going to learn a little bit more about um, our guest here today. So I'm going to start with Kevin. Um, And because of Twitter, I know Kevin has a very uh, robust uh, kid movie uh, entertainment life because <laughs> the uh, his a wonderful, beautiful family. Um, so, Kevin, Encanto or Moana? Oh, okay. So I've got a lot of thoughts on this. Um, so I am a Moana fan, and this could be because Moana was one of the last full movies that my five-year-old would watch from start to finish before he inexplicably developed anxiety around watching movies. And so there's evidently it's a thing where some kids, just the uncertainty around movies uh, gets them kind of worked up and they can't can't handle it. Uh, Moana is one that we used to be able to watch together. And we would listen to the music in the car and he would sing when he was younger. And so that one I think holds, uh, you know, a place in my heart and I still know, you know, most of the words to the songs. So I'm going to go with Moana. Oh, well that just, that gave me all the warm fuzzies. (laughs) Yes. All right. So John, this is for you. Um, you know, I am a Chicago native, so this is a important question. (laughs) Cubs or White Sox? (laughs) Oh, I'm, well, I'm glad it's not the question of, is, does Chicago have beaches? Uh, <laughs> like every Florida person gives us such a hard time about our beaches in yes. Chicago. Um, I'm gonna, I, I will have to say Cubs because I literally live oh. within an eight-minute walk 
to the Cubs All studio. Right. Um, right. So yes. I know it's, okay. you know, but it's, uh, it's close and convenient. So. Okay. 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 All right. We'll let it go. Okay. <laughs> Toby, yes. questions for you. Their eyes were watching God or the bluest eye? So I'm going to go with their eyes are watching God. Really? Yeah. Okay. Um, so Zora is like close to my heart. Mm-hmm. Um, and particularly because I'm a um, woman from the South, right? like yes. I work in South Carolina, mm-hmm. but I'm from South Carolina. So I, you know, I came home with, with this position and, um, and I really appreciate um, the way that she just centered the voices of Southern folks and yes. just sitting on porches and just the ways that people talk in their folk ways and um, their life ways and, and everything. So Zora's always gonna, I'm always gonna ride for her first. Nice. <laughs> so it's my people. There's yeah, Watching God's my favorite book of all time. It so beautiful. it's my heart. Southern Southern women, cue Frankie Beverly Mays Southern Girl. That's what it's okay. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> So this last one, this is for all of you all. It may shake some tables. Enter at your Uh-oh. own risk. <laughs> all right. J-H-E or R-H-E? Journal of Higher Ed or the Review of Higher Ed? <laughs> oh, man. I want to acknowledge that this is an ASH-sponsored <laughs> podcast, so shout out to R-H-E. <laughs> but J-H-E or R-H-E? Everybody's nervous. I, I have I have a thought. Okay. Okay. Um, I, I, okay. So for the record, I actually have no real opinion on this. Because, you know, <laughs> they are you know, obviously both uh, run by wonderful people and are folks working hard to bring us the, the best and brightest. But I will say that RHE remains kind of my white whale in the sense that mm. I've never been able to get anything in there. Um, and so I have somewhat of a soft spot for Deji because I remember being early in my career or something on a whim and saying, there's no way mm-hmm. this is going to even be considered. They're going to treat it like a joke and, you know, kick it to the curb. And it was one of those times where, like, you were, like, seriously elated to get a revise and resubmit mm-hmm. for something because you were like, oh, my gosh. Oh my God! Maybe I can do this. Maybe I can do this. Yeah. Maybe I'm a, I'm a real like, yeah. scholar. And the feedback was substantive and it was kind. And so it was one of those times where actually it, it was an affirming moment. Uh, and so if I had to pick one, okay. I would go with J G for for that reason. Okay. Shout out to affirming reviewers. Yes. We love it. I don't know if I can pick right now because. Um, I have a manuscript under review. <laughs> and, and we get it, John. We get yes, it. We get it. Comes out, yes. it will be published. Abstain. Abstain. <laughs> so here's hoping. So at that time, please check it out. <laughs> John said, "Everyone is lovely." Yes. Everyone's great. Love them all. Love them all. Beautiful gowns. Yeah. So for me. Um, I, I can do what my, my, I have an eight-year-old son. And so sometimes he just does the random, um, I don't know the answer. So I'll just. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Oh, uh, cause I, I honestly don't publish with either. No, uh, I'm, I'm a underdog dog journal uh, type person, right? Mm. So I feel like if, if we would just leverage the underdog uh, journals and love get that. our students to publish there, That's right, they, would, they wouldn't be underdogs anymore. Yes. There it yes. is. Toby says support all journals. And that's that on that. Okay. Well, thank you all as we uh, move forward and continue to ponder and probably judge some of your uh, your answers. I'm looking at you, John, and the Cubs. But um, we're going to go ahead and start our conversation. Um, and so we wanted to start off um, just asking you all to tell us a little bit about yourself and the work you've been engaged in, and what humanizing higher education means to you. We'll start off with uh, with you, John. I should share what your thoughts are. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, so as I'm on the tail end right now, cl- uh, completing my dissertation. I am Woo-hoo! in data analysis. Yes. Yes. So I'm hopeful for a fall defense here. Um, but before getting back to my PhD, um, I w- I've worked in higher ed for about uh, 10 to 15 years here, mostly in sponsored programs and faculty development. Um, I did a stint in Guatemala overseeing a nonprofit. 
Um, and right now I'm working at Loyola, but I'm also a research associate at uh, the University of Chicago in the School of Social Work. Um, and so it, it's interesting for me uh, when you ask like, what does what humanizing higher ed seem like to me is that it's, I think I'm in an interesting spot right now of, I'm literally on, well, I do some consulting work for Virginia Commonwealth and I'm on three different listservs of issues that happen on the national level or local level and how does each institution communicate that to their constituents. And mm. so, for example, you know, Roe v. Wade, uh, when that um, when that announcement came, I got emails within an hour from three different, very different institutions. And it was exciting and fun to critique the messaging behind that and what did that look like uh, for students, faculty, and staff. Um, so I think for me, you know, I think it's a lot of it's around uh, really what needs to be at the center of it. And... Um, and communication. I think a lot of that right now, where I'm, I think where I'm struggling with mm. most of it is um, in these times is a lack of communication. And mm. I think if folks knew what was going on and what's happened, uh, they could maybe understand a little bit better. And right. I think uh, communication can go a long way to kind of get folks engaged with the process um, and really understanding why, how we, how do we get here, right? So yeah. um, I think that's kind of how I look at it right now. And um, and I think everyone's struggling, mm. you know. Yeah, I, I, I agree. So the, uh, I think particularly the idea um, that there's a shared struggle. Um, I think there's mm. a shared exhaustion. We're running on a treadmill that just like, we can't get to, to the stop button and to slow it down and, and mm -hmm. everything. And, um, but, you know, I guess for me, um, this idea of humanizing and, you know, I talked about being, in South Carolina and from South Carolina. And, and, I, and I always start that because like the sense of like community rootedness, mm -hmm. everything really always has to stay present and at the forefront for me to remind me mm. of, you know, why I'm doing this, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I'm mm -hmm. uh, like you'll say, associate professor at uh, University of South Carolina. And, um, and I also run an aesthetic research center in the College of Education is the Museum of Education. Mm. And um, and I also um, serve in the grad school um, in a DEI role, which is largely what most of my work throughout my career mm. has been. So even the 10 years that I worked in student affairs before becoming a professor, I primarily worked in DEI mm -hmm. um, mm. in, in student affairs and, um, and cultural centers and, and everything. Mm. And so, um, in part of that, the the um, I think what what drives a lot of that work is this um, centering people, um, and that to me is is a part of humanizing. So we you know we we use terms like student centeredness and everything, whatever. But I think it's really important to um, to uh, be people centered yeah. uh, in our work um, because it's amazing to me. Uh, how many meetings or administrative meetings I, I'm at sometimes. And, and I'm wondering like, when do people mm. become these agents for the institution? Like that mm. where your focus is saving money for the institution mm. or, you know, mm -hmm. say like the, for the benefit of the, everything is for the benefit of the institution um, and not necessarily like for the people. Mm. Um, and, mm -hmm. you know, what would be better, what would be best for the people, even if, that might mean that the institution has to um, mm. to bend a little bit, or mm, you know, mm -hmm. um, and 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 that's a different um, kind of mindset sometimes than um, than than how people um, choose to leave. Um, and then the other thing I think that comes with that um, means that you have to see yourself as a person mm -hmm. and not as oh. a position mm. and an agent, you know, um, whatever. So it's like. Um, it's okay. And, it, you know, much of what drove the, um, uh, the exhibit that, uh, that we did at uh, last year's ASH conference um, on um, the pandemic and, and faculty and staff life was about faculty and staff um, lives that they, they matter too. And that we, we need to understand that, like, we need to see each other and, um, and, tell our stories and that our stories matter and the, the stuff that we experienced um, matters. And it's okay for us to have fun. It's okay for us to be angry mm -hmm. too, yeah. you know, like yeah. it, you know, there's this, this quote 
that if you can't, um, if, if you can be calm when all around you is chaos, perhaps you don't understand the situation. Um, but I think this type of, of push for people to, um, to be objective huh. and to not, you know, um, right. what, in our roles and, and positions um, at, in, in higher education or at, at particular institutions and, and everything is crazy. Uh, we're <laughs> human beings. And so yeah. if the institution or if the world is doing something, we have feelings about it and it's okay for us to have feelings about it. Um, you know, w- when it comes to this pandemic, we grieved, lost people, yeah. you know, uh, everything. <laughs> We, it's okay for us to express those things and mm-hmm. um, to admit those things uh, and, and everything. So it's also giving ourselves permission to be people, to be human. Yeah, you know, you said something and it, and it reminds me, I was in a conversation um, not too long ago, um, thinking about um, generations, kind of younger generations, rejection of institutions. And so um, we were having a dialogue about it. And I was like, and, and the question came up, um, can can institutions be beneficial for people? And and my response mm. was that when institutions exist to serve people and create community, I think they can be beneficial uh, kind of organisms. But when it, it turns into a situation where people exist to serve the institution, I think then we see that's the challenges that we see and in, in the conflict. Yeah that arises there. So it's why I always struggle with the language of institutional agents. So I appreciate the work, um, Staten Salazar and others who have written about the role of administrators, practitioners, and, you know, being brokers of capital and connecting students to institutions. But something like, what would it mean to be a student agent, not an institutional agent? Because what we're called to do in supporting students sometimes requires us to do things that are in conflict with the institution mm, mm-hmm. and to be an agent of the institution versus an agent of the students, agents of people at a college university is a different sort of discursive shift. Uh, I uh, struggled with the language yeah. of institutional agents. Yeah. Well, there's actually, it, it, there's also kind of interesting conversation just around the agency of institutions mm-hmm. and mm. some of the ways in which we uh, inadvertently kind of humanize or embody institutions when institutions by themselves, right, are not, don't have agency. Right, it's, right, it's the, right. It's people. Right. The people that make up these mm-hmm. these organizations. And yeah. so um, I've been in my own dialogue with myself around some of this conversation around um, we can't count on institutions to love us back. So why mm-hmm. do we pour ourselves into these institutions? Mm-hmm. And um, where, where I'm kind of at with this now and it comes back to kind of how I'm thinking about humanizing higher ed is I completely agree with that sentiment and we can't expect that institutions are going to love us back. Mm-hmm. But, but I do think that we can still expect something mm. from ourselves mm-hmm. and from the cultures that we are attempting mm. to build at these organizations. And mm-hmm. we can hold people accountable when the working conditions and cultures that have been created are toxic Mm -hmm. and are not treating people well. Um, So I was just nodding my head kind of through everything that Jonathan and and Toby had said so far in the sense of, I'm thinking a lot these days around what does it mean to build institutions? And I don't mean, I think that the institutions themselves as entities are going to take care of us. Mm-hmm. What I'm thinking about is kind of tossing out the window this idea that everything that we do, all of our labor ought to be funneled in the direction of institutional success and competitiveness. Mm-hmm. And we need to be doing a much better job of paying attention to and caring for all of the people up and down the hierarchy and across the organizational chart. Uh, And if we do that, I think if we do that, if we build a caring culture for everybody, inevitably there is going to be organizational success down the road. But if if that's what's pushing us, if our sole uh, focus is on the organization and loyalty to the organization and what Mm -hmm. we do to protect the institution, I think we are going to lose Mm -hmm. an awful lot along the way. Mm The other part that I think is really important around humanizing higher ed for me, at least, is trying to step back and think about a lot of the people 
and the labor that kind of goes invisible. Yes. And, you know, as I kind of move forward in my own thinking on this, I want to try to do a much better job of capturing the folks that are just so central to the enterprise of higher education who are educators, but whose work just does not even register right. often mm-hmm. as we tell kind of these narratives of organizational success. So, mm-hmm. um, so anyway, that's where I'm at with some of this around mm-hmm. humanizing higher ed. Um, and I came to this somewhat by accident uh, and, and largely through the pandemic, mm-hmm. to be honest, yeah. but my background is in really thinking about organizations and organizational theory um, and started off that's right words organ gov and started out studying privatization and academic capitalism and then drifted into looking at broad access institutional uh, institutions um, and regional public universities um, and have applied some of that organizational theory and governance to questions around the academic workplace really just within the last three years. Mm-hmm. You make a good point there, Kevin, thinking about building this community, right? Because I think a lot of it um, is that when we think about how a lot of, you know, folks have been at these institutions for a long time, that we've seen this long-term loyalty from some senior administrators, mm-hmm. right? And and I, I've heard it too many times to count of some of the language that will be said of, like, the institution owes you nothing mm-hmm. and, you know, mm. and you owe nothing to the institution. Right. I know I've heard that from several administrators and it's kind of like, is, mm. is, is that real? Is that what we want out of this system? <laughs> like, is that, cause that's what I, that's the, I, I didn't go to school for that. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that why like I've dedicated my career to it? I'm like, really? And, and I think that's why it's been, you know, the last couple of years, you know, during COVID times of that, folks are exhausted. And so some exhausted. of it, like that, that type of language gets into your head and you're like, when do you call it, right? That, mm-hmm. you know, we've, I've seen many incredible faculty leave tenure track roles because they're burnt out and the institution has done nothing to retain them, to support them. And, and they, they'll say that they have, but did they really, you know, I, I think it's, um, it's a challenging time, right? That it's, and it's kind of this shift that we're seeing and it's, yeah. it's hard when some of, you know, I don't want to use the term old guard, but some of this, you know, yeah. this mentality of like this cultural shit that needs to happen. That it's yeah, it's a perfect in segue pockets. into the next question around the great resignation. So there's so much conversation right now about what's happening, the sort of mass exodus of folks from various industries, including higher ed. What's happening in higher ed such that people are leaving right now? I think you allude to some of the things, the fatigue, the exhaustion uh, and so forth. But what, what's happening in higher ed as it relates to the great resignation? Yeah, I mean, we are in a moment where there is a lot of movement happening. So not all of it is people quitting higher ed altogether. Um, Some of that is happening, of course. And we've got an awful lot of people who are shifting within their own institutions, Mm -hmm. looking Mm -hmm. for something else, looking for different opportunity. We've got people who are shifting to other universities or places adjacent to higher ed where um, you know, maybe they got a salary bump or mm-hmm. um, more flexibility connected to the job. Mm-hmm. And so um, this is a moment, and I hope it continues, of worker empowerment where folks feel as if they have more choices available to them and they're taking advantage of those choices. The movement itself creates some of those opportunities, right? Mm-hmm. So as people shift, jobs become open, and so people take a look at those. But um all of that is like kind of very much this current moment. And it is certainly connected to the pandemic and a reevaluation of a lot of things in people's lives. But what I've been trying to do is connect this moment to what I think is actually a much longer running story, which is that higher ed has not particularly played, paid attention to working mm. conditions yeah. or working cultures for a very long time. Mm-hmm. We have just hoped, banked, relied (laughs) upon folks coming and Mm. staying. Um, I don't think that we have made a real serious push to be competitive, at least compared to some other knowledge organizations Mm -hmm. in the world of talent acquisition and retention. And so, um, and and certainly we've got long running problems connected to uh, racism and sexism and uh, not doing a particularly good job of, you know, ensuring that people 
are not completely consumed by work uh, in pursuit of what is sometimes framed as a passion. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think what we are seeing is not this just pandemic induced spur of the moment change that people are pursuing. I think what we are seeing is that there have been folks for a long time who have been questioning mm. and wondering, is this as good as it gets? And are now, for a variety of reasons, seeing a, a way to kind of put that questioning into action. Um, I know that it creates a lot of uncertainty, turbulence, problems sometimes at institutions, but I actually think that this is maybe a good thing, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. that we need a shock to the system. And mm -hmm. um, my big thing is that we would be really dumb <laughs> as a sector to not step back and to try to understand this and make some changes. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I, for me, it's, it's, I've been looking, I really feel like there's just this, like Kevin's saying, this moment. And it's this moment of like um, so much um, entrepreneurship happening across industries mm. and people um, just being able to um, to pursue different ideas and having access to do that um, and freedom to kind of do that and um, and have a, a livelihood kind of attached to it or whatever. But like one of the things like um, as he was talking about um, it's been ha it's been going on for some time. Um, I, I think it's so true. It's almost like this, you know, like if you've been in a, a bad um, relationship and um, or it's like a not so healthy relationship, mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? And so it, it, it's not toxic where you're like, oh, I'm running, I'm, I'm, you know what I'm saying? It's abusive, right. I, I gotta get out of it. But it's just like, it's really not that great. And, um, and so, and you don't leave it. You just have like a period where maybe that person leaves for a while. Like they go on a, mm, an extended, mm -hmm. like they go to work for a long, they travel for work or they're gone for a minute. And you're like, oh my gosh, the house is so peaceful. Mm -hmm. Like, this is so great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was the pandemic i think for a lot of people mm. it's like okay you know this isn't i kind of like like i don't have to I deal to with back this to that, right? yeah yeah ridiculousness that i when i was showing up for work every day and it's actually kind of peaceful i kind of like this i you know like that type of thing and um and it's inspiring people to uh to recognize that they don't have to deal with it and i think um mm. when you look at the com how competitive even some corporate industries are. You know, when I first became a professor, I was like really baffled at how much people were, were like overworking themselves mm. in the professorate mm. because I was working in student affairs. And so my, my interpretation was that <laughs> that was the area where, That's where you know, everybody I would, was burnt out for I'd real move over and I'd have coffees and you know what I'm saying? <laughs> um, and, and then, I, you know, I come into these cultures where everyone's like trying to come to work every day. And I'm mm -hmm. like, wait a minute, I didn't take a $20,000 pay cut to, you know, <laughs> to come again. into, you know, and be policed in many ways, you know? Um, and it's like, no, I, it, the, the benefit of this is the flexibility, is the lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And like, why aren't we embracing it, yes. right? And so, and I think um, this pause with COVID even for a lot of those folks, allow them to recognize that they could still be productive. And they, mm -hmm. it, it almost kind of forced them to engage that traditional kind of faculty life where you're not necessarily coming into the office every day, but you're still engaging in your work and, 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 um, and, and everything. But I'm like, the, when you have corporations whose work cultures are um, becoming known for being really fun mm -hmm. and flexible mm -hmm. yeah. and yeah. pleasant places, and, and, and folks are making more money over there and they're huh. paying people and they're saying, you know what, we, yes. we want you to have a global um, um, mindset. So we're going to pay for you to go on a, um, yep. you know, mm -hmm. a, a, a international journey every however many years. <laughs> why, why would you stay in this? Why violence? <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. You know, if it's not fun, if it's not really pouring in um, fun and joy, 
coming to a, a, a campus. If it's not humanizing. Um, mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. And you, and, you know, I think that um, something you said, Toby, married with um, something Kevin said and thinking about, right, the the ways in which we kind of normalize, you know, rejecting, like, what was the benefit of doing this, right? Like, I wanted the flexible schedule. <laughs> I wanted to have time to think and do things. And then the the socialization, the culture kind of tells you to reject that, like, to in order to be productive, in order to be um, a notable person or someone who looks like they're doing what they're supposed to do, you have to kind of overwork or do those things. And I think about that also in relationship with Kevin talked about like invisible labor um, and the, the the people we don't see who are working really hard, which brings me when I bring those two things together to um, a question I have for John, who mentioned to us that he is a graduate student um, who works in I'm curious because I feel like our graduate students, particularly in in higher ed programs, our graduate students tend to work and they tend to be the glue (laughs) that holds a lot of our institutions together. They're working on campuses Mm -hmm. or in offices. Yeah, they're they're really important. But um, even in my own institution, we had to have conversation like, hey, you all are looking at our students as if they're just employees. And they're also students that need care in certain ways. And so, John, I'm, I'm curious, from your perspective as a graduate student, how did you experience COVID impact graduate students, not only as students, but as students who are also campus employees? Yeah. Uh, real talk. <laughs> it, uh, this last, you know, so I had just started, went back to get my PhD seven months before COVID, you know, mm. the onset of COVID. And so I had in-person experience. It was great. And then it was like, leave your office. I didn't go back for like two years. And mm. um, for me, as you know, something that worked full time and then coming back, obviously there's this assimilation and getting back into it and being a full-time student, but then also being a, re- you know, a research assistant. And mm-hmm. um, it's interesting of looking at how it's, you know, progressed over the last, you know, two years. And it's interesting that this last spring, I had served on several different committees and, I kid you not, two different uh, other faculty members from different departments on these committees like would make jokes of like, wow, you're like a, a junior faculty member right now. Everything you've been mm. doing is like a faculty stuff. Mm. I'm like, yeah, and you're not paying me. That's, for right. that. like, <laughs> no, that's right. This has all been volunteer. Like you haven't like this is over above and beyond. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that has been a big part of it too, that it's, you know, we have students that are part of it that you know, they, some of our cohorts have never met each other in person until this last year, mm. right? That, so there's those barriers, right? And, and student, not, as we all know, you know, just student mental health and there's just a lot of issues that are going on, but it's a lot of universities have been utilizing their grad students as additional labor mm-hmm. or workforce. And like when a lot of that research is such time to be doing research and actually doing research mm-hmm. and not programmatic stuff that the institution should be doing mm. and paid for by a staff member. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I know, it's, I know it's not akin to one institution, right? It's all across the board. Right. And I think that's where it's been really struggling for students. And, and then especially when students are seeing transition in their faculty and their advisors have been changing several times and, you know, seeing different decisions that are coming at the institution, it's like we study this stuff. Like, a lot of us work <laughs> at the institution. Forget, people forget for, that part. Right. Like it's like <laughs> this is our discipline. So we could tell you how to improve this if you asked or take it our opinion. Or some of us work at the institution. It's like you treat us like students. Mm-hmm. And when we when you ask us about, you know, decision making and policy, then you treat us like an employee when you want us to do the labor and work. Mm. So it's like what are we right mm. and um and stop emailing me about the retirement plan because i'm not <laughs> eligible you know like, i don't need save your postage i don't need it anymore right so it's, <laughs> i think it's like a, now that you know so this you know um what uh toby and, and uh, kevin had said with you know taking now as a learning opportunity of fixing these structures that mm-hmm. people transition out or a cohort graduates like how do you fix what we're doing to kind of steer the course back to where we want to be going right and you know it's i know it's easier said than done but it's like a lot of these things if you do one inch one way all these other things need to trickle right that we can't just mm-hmm. say 
we're going to change our enrollment practices because it's going to trickle everywhere else of, you know, our funding allocations to our staffing of faculty in these courses. But it's one inch, one way makes everything else have to trickle and follow mm-hmm. after. And so I think there's a lot of it of this conversation of, you know, some dehumanizing work that it's not the respect. And, and, and I think a big part of it, too, is that we're expected to do all these things, but it's um, not the support for when I'm ready to launch and mm. look at faculty roles, there's not systems that are in place mm-hmm. other than my, my advisor who will take off a Saturday to meet with me because they're overworked at the right. institution, but they'll meet with me to talk about my dissertation, mm-hmm. do job talk coaching with me on a Saturday when he has his own family too. So it's right. how do you know, so it's, he feels that pain and, you know, the commitment to the people and trying to build this culture, but then it's, we're also feeling that too. Right. And we're, how do you wrestle in those spaces? And um, so, yeah, it's, it's been a COVID only exacerbated this, right? I, I think, right. you know, before these, these, this existed before and I don't know really like similar Absolutely. experiences, right? But it's, I think COVID and being remote for so long yeah. just yeah. made these sores so obvious and, you know, the need to, to do some fixes. So and, how do we fix it? What are the structural policies, practices that we ought to be thinking about to create better workplace conditions and that offer protections for faculty, staff, and students? There's been lots of conversations about unions and their role in this, conversations about shared governance and the, the sort of fight between administrators and faculty members. What are some things that we ought to be thinking about um, that offer some protections? I think the first step, right, is like we, we look at our policies and what's there. Um, mm. You know, that's I, I key. Think even we like, probably should know what our policies are. Don't um, that's me. About. <laughs> I'm about to get on a soapbox. I'm going to step back down. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, if, I, if you think about it, we have some of these incredible. If we look at Edward Corden, who's expected to have you know their butt in the seat five days a week, and but our, you know our faculty can come at a, at a different schedule, mm-hmm. right? But it's like how we're treating folks differently, right? And these things, and graduate students can come in whenever they feel like it, and so I think some of those things of like actually meeting each kind of constituency, like what group and what are their needs and what do they want in a workplace, right? That mm-hmm. we look at these institute organizations that are attractive that allow remote work when they want to in-person, exciting and fun benefits in other sectors. Well, we can do that too. There's no reason why we cannot. Um, so I think a lot of it is looking at what are the structures that are in place that are the current barriers but it's giving voice to people in those roles, right? That it's, mm-hmm. is, are you making a policy on a, uh, remote work um, and it's made at the dean level by this, each school or college? Did you actually ask the people that this affects? Like, are they on that committee and helping write that policy? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Most of the times, mm-hmm. no, I don't think that's true, right? Do yeah. you ask the so, higher education scholars at your institution about things like governance and decisions? Well, you would have to see them as experts. I, well, oh yeah, right, because... <laughs> We don't. Felicia has been burned before, I think. Uh, <laughs> I'm get, I have a lot of little soapbox. I have like a soapbox city that I just, <laughs> um, yeah, it's just my uh, well, little. So, as a, Jonathan, as I was hearing you talk, you know, one of the things that I thought about is the fact that um, one of the challenges, of course, that we've seen over the last couple of years in the face of some of these challenges and there being pushback from higher education workers is a fair amount of refusal or, mm. or you know, it's some, some refusal at least and faculty that are trying to figure out, you know, what are the boundaries that I'm going to set and saying no mm. to more things. And I certainly ha- had my own fling with like refusal for a period of time in there. But what I ultimately came kind of back around to is the fact that like, if it's not me, who is going to be part of change, then how exactly is this going to, you know, like, it's not going to be the exploited grad students or right. the administrative assistants that that are, that need, really need to push some of these conversations. It really is folks that are in a position to be listened to, I think, in a different way. Um, and so I'm I'm now kind of moving in the direction of, we, those of us that feel like we are in a position to be able to do something, need to be pushing in a different direction. We need to actually be pushing more towards a strategic set of yeses that mm. are going to 
help the cultures at our institutions in a different way. And what that means, by the way, is that we've got to say no to some other stuff, mm. including we may got we may have to give up on the prestigious journals. Mm-hmm. We may have to give up on that post. Okay, okay, so Ash, don't get mad at me, but we may have to give up <laughs> on that position within a professional association, mm. or we may have to, you know, check our ego at the door yeah. and say this stuff that obviously brings us recognition and reward is not actually bringing about the type of change right. in a lot of right. cases at, at our institutions that we are advocating, and so. And that means, Kevin, right? Yeah. Like that means we also have to shift reward structures right. at institutions. Yeah, it would certainly be helpful if our organizations helped us with this, right? <laughs> right? So one of the one of the other big things that I've been talking about a lot is, you know, these are organizational problems. They require organizational solutions, and so what that means is that I'm not individually going to move the dial on a lot of these things. Mm-hmm. I'm going to need to get on board a a larger group of people through governance systems or through collective organizing. And I'm going to need mm-hmm. to get managers and leaders to understand what we are talking mm-hmm. about and to, and to believe them, to believe us mm-hmm. that these are. Right. Mm-hmm. So I know that many of you will agree with this and Felicia, I know you in particular will agree with this, but we also, we need better leaders. We need better well, leaders. He said it y'all. I didn't, I'm just agreeing. But he said somebody tweeted at me recently that many of these morale problems are not like just morale problems. They're bad leadership problems. problems. And Mm -hmm. it's true. I mean, that is very much the case. And so that means, by the way, that it's not going to just magically happen. We need to build systems that are going to encourage people to learn and grow as they are stepping into leadership roles. Because too often we just have people that step into these roles and then they're in them for a period of years and we equate experience with knowledge and skills and then they just move huh. on to to a new leadership position and that's yeah. just not going to work it's not going to be good enough moving forward um so the other thing we i think we all have to be prepared for is that there a is going to be a lot of pushback mm-hmm. because there are a lot of people who as i said do not believe that these are problems mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. We're very happy with the way things were and yeah. we're successful. Yeah. Anyway, they benefit from it. They benefited from it. It worked yeah. from them. It worked for them. Um, and yeah. so this is going to be a process and is going to take time. And there is no guarantee of success because of, of some of those challenges. And so that's why I'm, you know, really hoping that we can get, and I include myself in this, that so we can all kind of sit down and say, you know, where, where, what is my place in this conversation mm-hmm. and what are the steps that I can take that are going to be, that are going to bring about concrete, helpful changes in the spaces that I'm walking. Yeah. And, you know, um, I'm so glad you brought up the leadership thing, because I think two things come to mind. Um, one is what you said about needing better leaders, the conversation um, I often have with um, Dr. Takia Robinson, shout out to her as we talk Takiya. about leadership, is that there's an assumption that because people go through these quote unquote validating kind of processes in higher education that they know how to lead, right? Mm. So because they're tenured or they had a certain position that they know how to lead. And so we just throw them in positions. And the reality is they don't know how to lead at all. Mm-hmm. And so they're, <laughs> they're just moving around, trying to figure things out on the fly. And we see what the impact of that is. I think the second thing is as we are moving into a different era and understanding um, and manifestation of higher education, right, particularly in the U.S., that we may need to rethink like what leadership is and and diversify our understanding of leadership models and leadership kind of actions and what leadership is, who leadership looks like, all of these things. And so that brings me to you, um, uh, Dr. Jenkins Henry, like from your perspective as an expert in DEI and higher education, how has the pandemic challenged institutions in the areas of inclusion and belonging and diversity And how can we use this moment to shift our thinking regarding humanizing work conditions for higher education workers? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is, like everyone's saying, is to um, is to listen to people Mm. and and ask them, um, you know, what they want and Mm. and what the you know what what does an inclusive environment even look like? What is it? What does it feel like? Uh, you know, for you and having those conversations and then trying to, to truly um, recreate that. I remember the, the um, 
the first study that I did as a, a um, faculty member, or in really, you know, my dissertation was around understanding what culture was. To mm-hmm. students, right. Mm-hmm. So we we're saying we're, we're leading cultural centers. Well, then how are you doing that if you don't understand how they even define culture yeah. and, and, and how they see its utility? And uh, how do we recreate something that we don't even know or understand? And, and we're just basing it on what it is for us or, you know, that type of thing, whatever. Right. So mm-hmm. I, I think we kind of have these conversations um, and be willing to hear what people have to say. And not just mm-hmm. like, so, you know, I, I always say this thing about like, um, it's not just about letting them in, it's about letting them in and let them live. Ooh. Right. So like, mm. let me live, like, mm-hmm. let me live in the way that I'm used to live. If my sensibility is to, you know, I, I, I like some loudness in my environment, right. then, mm. and, you know, your little quiet campus, <laughs> but <laughs> you might need to do something with that, you know, um, but that's the the reality. Like the, if I look at my home space, why would I ever want to leave mm-hmm. the cozy, comfortable, aesthetically pleasing environment to come to your stale institutional mm-hmm. space? Mm-hmm. And I'm supposed to be inspired. This is where I'm supposed <laughs> to write and right. innovate. And, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like no. So, so we we really have got to be open to um to changing things in some real concrete uh concrete ways and um and in and whether it's policies whether it's some paint you know mm-hmm. what i'm saying mm-hmm. like it might be a lot of different um things or strategies that we have to take that you would be amazed at how it would change um just some flexibility and um mm. and fun and you know and so I keep saying it but it's like nobody wants to 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 be in spaces that um that sucks the life out of them yeah. uh, particularly mm-hmm. when to be in the the business of creation um and so you know I I, I think like even understanding that um as Kevin was talking about organizations and stuff like that w- 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 what do organizations that's that that um that spark that type of um creation and innovation and um and energy and everything you know what are some of the things that they do um and and guess what like we might be able to learn from other types of um you know environments uh, mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and not hold so steadfast to um, higher education or colleges or universities feeling mm. the way that they've always felt. They might mm. need to feel different. My, co- um, my colleague and friend, LaWanda Ward, uses the term dignity affirming mm. uh, to refer to the kinds of policies and practices that we need That's to good. reimagine dignity and humanity affirming uh, practices within an higher education. Yeah, that's good. That's good. I'm glad that you had mentioned kind of thinking about other other spaces and other organizations, uh, Toby, just because there are folks that sometimes respond to my writing and say, you, you know, listen, y'all think that the private sector is wonderful and it's not, you know, it's got <laughs> problems too. And um, you don't realize how good, you know, you got it or we've got it mm-hmm. in, in academe or in, in higher ed. Um, and I guess, you know, the way that I've been thinking about this is, first of all, you know, the grass isn't greener all the time anywhere. You know, mm-hmm. you could make a shift to another institution and things are worse or just exactly the same. It's just in a different place. And similarly, you right. can move to somewhere outside of higher ed and it's still got problems. But um, I do think that we would be really foolish not to look at other knowledge organizations, whether they're nonprofits or, or companies yeah. and say, you know, these are places that are people-centered and mm-hmm. they are productive and folks are satisfied there and they are managing to accomplish their goals in a way that doesn't absolutely run through people or doesn't, is it predicated on the idea that you've got one group of people that gets all of the benefits and one group of people that gets like absolutely nothing, mm-hmm. right? Because right. that's, that's how a lot of colleges are operating right now. Um, and so... Why not look to those places and try to get a sense of of what could be adopted, and even even just as a small scale experiment, give right. it a try. 
Um, and there are people who get really worried that that's somehow <laughs> going to corporatize the university. And I'm like, I mean, they're already doing it by ourselves. I was about right? to say, they're like, already. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not, I, you know, my whole, I'm not advocating for that. I've you know, got a lot of, a lot of writing that would, you know, opposed to that idea. But um, if there are some ideas elsewhere that help us get to a place where we are doing a better job of humanizing the work that we do, right. why not give that a try? Yeah. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a country girl. I grew up in the middle of nowhere, Maryland. It's really wonderful. Um, not really, but anyway, that's a story for another day. But what you said, Kevin, I always find interesting. People are like, oh, well, you know, you think the grass is greener on the other side, but it's not. The grass is greener where you water it, right? And so if we think about it in that way, how about we make it easier for us to water the grass, right? (laughs) And, And so it's not so much that, you know, we're saying like, oh, it's so much better over in the private sector, but there are some things going on in other sectors and other organizations and that are allowing people to be able to make their grass greener. And so why don't we take a step back and think, and to your point, to think about, are there things we can do to make the water flow a little better so that we can have the green grass? I mean, can we get a sprinkler system? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Spigot, something. So as we wrap up the conversation, I am wondering... How are you finding and or creating joy these days in your own life, professionally, personally, professionally? Mm-hmm. I think for me, it's been just really important to find, you know, like what are my joys and what, you know, that now that we're able to do things that, you know, maybe we weren't able to do for a couple of years. So like traveling mm-hmm. and exploring, so kind of you mm-hmm. know, not realizing that and, and being okay with rest and being like, I Ooh. don't have to be. 12 different things going on because you know as a grad student you have like 12 different jobs and you're trying to make rent and keep living your life and um so I think there's that and then I think also you know that's like personally but then also then professionally of I think trying to find that balance of like what is my professional life and what's my personal because I think in higher ed we our personal is professional and our professional you know so it's yeah we're in this thing that it's like well what do you do with your free time well, like mm. you're reading that, but like, what, what are you reading? Is it always academic? Is it always related right. to these deliverables that you're working on? Um, so I think trying to, what's the joy of my personal life and then professional is, I think just continuing to build a, a, a strong professional community that I enjoy being with, right? Mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. you know, we can hate the way the system's messed up. We can get frustrated with decision makes decision making that had happened at the institution, but together we can have community and a warm culture together and we're kind of weathering the storm together. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's, to me, it's just trying to find community in, in, in and out um, of the academy, I think has been really important. Um, and, it, and has it allowed me to, you know, start and finish a PhD during a pandemic. Mm. I never thought I'd ever do that in my life, but yeah. here we are. Um, I think for me, <laughs> I don't know. So I um, have an eight year old that's like <laughs> so super busy with football and basketball and all this stuff, whatever. So I'm like into this. I'm chauffeuring him around in my oh. my <laughs> free time. Um, so, you know, I guess that that can bring some people to some joy. <laughs> <laughs> Some people. Does it bring <laughs> you <some> joy? <laughs> I like the jury's still out. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I but, and I, I share it because it's not like I'm just working all the time. Mm-hmm. But even in some of the other things that you know we responsibilities that we have in our personal lives, yeah, those are that's work too. <laughs> you know second shift it's, it's, yeah 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 it's a different kind of work, but it's it's not necessarily like leisure and and everything. Um. But um, I think in in some moments um, now, because I am also dealing with um, still grappling with, uh, I have immune, you know, I have serious health issues. And mm-hmm. so um, I'm still, you know, wearing masks and, and not doing, you know, different things or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm still finding joy in binge watching TV shows mm-hmm. and, um, and, or just having time to like 
redo my playlists on my phone um, mm-hmm. so that, you know, I can enjoy it. Cause like mm. some things I just never had time to do um, over the last couple of years or whatever. So it's, it, it, I'm, I'm trying to learn how to not essentialize. I used to travel a lot and, you know, mm. in my, my joy, my per, whatever life had to be these big, amazing, you know, type of experiences, whatever. And I think one, one of the things COVID has, has helped me to do is to, to, um, appreciate the joy in just like the smallest little mm. um, things right. that um, are just giving you some space to do to enjoy not nothingness or whatever mm-hmm. if, if mm-hmm. that's even a thing that's great um so yes I relate very much to um personal life sometimes just being more more work uh, at, my children are not sleeping a lot right now for strange reasons and they're a lot so I'm just kind of tired but um Apart from just my general tiredness all the time, um, I have been, I have gotten a lot of joy just from being able to be part of conversations like this where Mm. I've gotten to meet a lot of people. And as I said, I I am kind of new to this, this particular conversation. Mm -hmm. And Mm. what it means for me is like, I have so many questions and I feel like a learner again. Mm. And there's so much that um, that I feel like I need to get to better understand and so many questions yeah. out there that we need to kind of collectively tackle that um, as someone who whose brain kind of works and sparks, this is kind of still very much a moment of discovery for me. And so that's been really, really exciting and um, being able to just kind of connect with other people as I've been writing and thinking about these things and, and hearing about their experiences has been um, unlike anything in my career so far. And so I get I'm getting a lot of joy from, from that. That's beautiful. Yeah. And, and I'm going to say that one of the things that brings me joy uh, is uh, Kevin's Twitter. <laughs> and so um, I think it's a tie between. I see some snaps in the studio. Yeah, a tie between Kevin's Twitter and Brendan Cantwell's hard seltzer reviews on TikTok. <laughs> and so, <laughs> but also this conversation has brought me joy, so much joy. and it's um, been really great for us to think through like the challenges um, of those of us who are working in this system that we are so are actively trying to make better mm-hmm. for more people and more accessible for more people. And so I want to thank you all thank you, thank you, um, thank for you, coming thank you. and joining for in this conversation, for being candid and open and brilliant. Um, and I'm sure our listeners are going to walk away with a, a lot of things to think about and show them. And so um, really, really thank you so much. So grateful for you sharing your time with us. Thank you to our guests, Dr. Kevin McClure, Dr. Toby Jenkins-Henry, and John Oxide for joining us today and making us think about what it looks like to make a more humanizing higher education workplace in a world forever changed by COVID-19. At the end of each conversation, we like to engage in a segment called Scholar Soundtrack as we reflect on what musical selections ring in our minds as we think about the day's conversation. The song that came to mind today was understanding by escape. Because really, we could change and accomplish so much if we would just listen to the needs and knowledge of those on the ground and in the trenches, making our institutions run day after day. Well, that was today's song for our Scholar Soundtrack. You'll be able to find a playlist of these songs along with the syllabus for today's episode and all of the episodes in the Ash Presidential Podcast Series. And there's still more to come. We will be back next week for another exciting conversation about humanizing higher education. I promise you, you don't want to miss it. Till then, I'm Royale. I'm Felicia. Until next time, keep keep it it human. human.